Hi everyone, my name is JJ Anselmi, and I'm a musician and author, and my first book, Heavy, a memoir of Wyoming, BMX, drugs, and heavy fucking music, was released by Rare Bird last month. <clears throat> I'm here today talking with my friend and former bandmate, uh, Grant Netzorg, who plays guitar in the monolithic two-piece doom band in the Company of Serpents. So Grant and I met about five years ago at a show that we were both playing. Uh, we were both in country bands at the time, and I heard Grant playing uh, an Earth riff, uh, which is this awesome drone-style metal band or heavy band. Uh, I heard him playing an Earth riff during soundcheck um, and then decided I had to talk to him after the set. Um, and we you know, talked about doing metal after the show, basically ranted to each other about all the bands that we loved. Um, and so we decided that we had to start a band at that point. Uh, the band ended up being in the Company of Serpents, uh, which I amicably left when I moved to California for grad school that same year in 2011. So how's it going, Grant? Not too bad, thanks, JJ. <laughs> so for uh, anyone who doesn't know, um, can you give a history of the band? Um, you know, kind of beyond what I just said, it was really the tip of the iceberg when I was in the band we yeah. just recorded that. Yeah. Yeah, the sure. Um, album. <clears throat> yeah, right, exactly. So, I mean, it's funny, like, looking back on it, it seems like this was a pretty long time that you and I had been in the band together when we formed it together. But um, I think ultimately it ended up being, like, less than, like, 10 months that we wrote that original material, recorded that first uh, self-titled record, and put that out and by I want to say I think it was okay maybe January 2011 when you and I formed the band and by that fall you had moved to California so at that point I had uh, identified a few drummers that I like in other Denver projects in particular um, this dude Joe Meyer who was in a band called Royal Talent who were an exceptionally heavy brutally slow but awesome uh band uh in the denver area and i really loved his style of playing he's a very like animated drummer to watch he's really compelling to watch in a live setting and you know i, I really dig that um as far as just playing with somebody like that and so i had asked joe if he wouldn't mind uh filling in your your uh, footsteps after you split for california and mm -hmm. he's been in the band ever since. Um, so in the Company of Serpents now, is, it remains a two-piece. Uh, we've put out a handful of other records. So one, one three-song EP that's about uh, 23 minutes long that came out mm -hmm. last year, and uh, as well as a full-length called Of the Flock that we did prior to that, which would have been the first record with Joe uh, after your departure. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, we continue to love what we're, we're doing with it and we're writing new music um we've yeah been kind of in writing mode lately and uh you know along along the journey and in the path that we've taken we've been really lucky in terms of the types of show opportunities that we've gotten we've, we've had the pleasure of opening for a lot of our heroes um and we couldn't be more tickled about it <laughs> um yeah it's it's an awesome band to be in and you know the precedent that you and i set initially uh is kind of 
a path that Joe and I are still following. Um, you know, obviously we've kind of changed musically quite a bit and the sounds evolved a lot. Um, mm-hmm. but the core of it is just, you know, driving sludge doom style, uh, heavy metal, um, played by two people, uh, emphatically. <laughs> yeah, nice. I like that emphatically. And so, yeah, it's been cool, you know, as I was kind of um, going through school, just seeing you guys get shows. I mean, especially, you know, you said um, the heroes, and I mean, I'm imagining it's referencing uh, I Hate God and Neurosis especially, right? Yeah, yeah. I Hate God was one of the first, like, big national bands that's really, like, fairly renowned within the scene that we got to open for. Um, That was, I want to say... I feel like that was uh, early 2013, like January 2013. Uh, before that, we got to mm-hmm. open for Jucifer at one point. Um, and it's kind of snowballed from there. We've had a lot of good opportunities. Um, like We got to open for Neurosis. That was massive for both yeah. Joe and I. That's, I mean, they're, we have the utmost respect for what they do. You know, they've, they've got such a visceral, no-bullshit sound that... Um, is something we really admire and you know there's you can kind of tell when there's a level of commitment in a band um to what they do and it being beyond any sort of like i guess fame hungry sort of pursuit of rock stardom and uh you know neurosis is pretty emblematic of that um we also got to open for sleep which was huge for us i mean sleep's catalog is definitely one that's informed <laughs> a lot of our um i guess passions with, when it comes to this this music so getting open to them was extraordinary and we've just been really lucky in that regard and it, like it's it's come down to basically us having a lot of awesome fans in the denver area that um you know who've gotten stoked on what it is we're doing and with that, you know, we've we've gotten some killer opportunities, and we we hope they keep rolling in, but uh, have no delusions of fame or grandeur, and that they'll that they will. <laughs> yeah, totally, and I'm really glad you brought up uh, <clears throat> neurosis or your description of them is really awesome, and the visceral quality. And to me, when I hear it, it's just uh, you know, just so rich. It, you know, I think on kind of some level it's you don't know what you're listening to or somebody hearing it for the first time and it was definitely me when I heard it for the first time it's easy to kind of gloss over it and think oh is this kind of you know slow and simple but the music is just super textured and rich which kind of leads me into what I wanted to talk about next which is just kind of um, you know the influence of literature on metal and you know how it might tie in to me so Neurosis just has a very literary quality, you know, and that kind of layered, rich texture. Um, and I know, you know, those dudes are super smart. They've talked about being influenced by Cormac McCarthy and Philip K. Dick and stuff. And so I wanted to talk to you about um, how literature has kind of shaped your own, uh, or how literature has influenced your own music um, and maybe even got you into certain bands sure. or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, um, you mentioned in your introduction there how we had kind of bonded initially over Earth, um, Dylan Carlson's ongoing project uh, that kind of be- began as a 
is a drone metal project and it's since evolved into this kind of like this eerie stare um i don't know twangy guitar sort of music i don't know i i yeah i hesitate to call it like americana or anything but um but i don't know kind of sounds like scary spaghetti western music to me but um and i I love that sound <laughs> yeah, but i remember like he he um dylan carlson had expressed that he was uh, and he just mentioned Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, um, he mentioned that um, a lot of his work, in particular the Hex record, which was really like the first of his, I guess, eerie um, sort of twangy guitar uh, records. Yeah. Um, that was heavily influenced by uh, Blood Meridian. Um, you know, all, all the titles of the songs on that record are all. Um, either direct references just cribbed straight from Blood Meridian's chapter titles and subtitles or, you know, allusions to them. So, like, I remember um, I had kind of heard that, and then I finally got around to reading Blood Meridian, and my favorite song on that hex or printing in the Infernal Method record is called Rayford, The Felon Wind, and that's mm-hmm. one of the titles of, of, of a chapter in that book. And... You know, McCarthy is one of those those authors that, uh, I mean, he's he's got an unparalleled vocabulary, and it seems like he's able to pluck the perfect word for any any sort of environment. And at least for me, um, I have to I find myself when I'm reading him that I have to break out the dictionary and figure out what it is he's he's referring to with with certain totally. words that home play. Um, and then you'll read it, and then you'll just say to yourself, "Holy shit, there is." literally not a better choice for the grimness that he's going for right here than what he just for used. Sure. Um, so McCarthy's, McCarthy's an awesome one. I actually haven't read him for a little while. The last thing of his that I read was The Road, um, and it's been like three years at least since I read that. Um, I loved it. Um, he's just, he's got that sort of ability to just create just a chilling grim that's still really human sort of um, environment or landscape in, in his novels, mm-hmm. or at least the few that I've read. I've only read a handful of his books um, that I think definitely can align with, um, I guess, some of the more extreme mindsets of heavy metal and the imagery that gets employed often in heavy music. Um, mm-hmm. As far as like recent influences in terms of just stuff I've been reading that has found its way into our music, um, on the last EP, Merging in Light, um, there's some some allusions to uh, uh, the work of William S. Burroughs and Brian Geisen um, as oh, well nice. in there. Yeah, so like like there's a track on that record called Third Mind. That's the title of a book they wrote together. Um, and uh, the notion of the third mind in general is was kind of like a curious one that I I I, I just liked um, uh, in general. Um, I guess to to try and put a, a pin on it, uh, the the idea of the third mind is that whenever there's any 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 group of people, you know, one or two people um, having uh, any sort of discourse, there's a third mind that's their collective shared mind uh, between the two of them. Um, so right now, the, you know, the conversation that we're having is there's a third mind that's that that's better than the sum of its parts. There's this this abstract consciousness that's our discourse. Um, but uh, Burroughs has a couple of, of books that kind of deal with his practical applications of um, 
the cut up technique. Um, I, yeah. I know you probably you're, you're familiar with cut up techniques, but um, he he gets into it's it's pretty uh, heavy stuff when you read about how he starts to employ it in his personal life. Um, he was always carrying yeah. tape recorders around with him, making cut-ups that he would use in a very witchy sort of way. It's almost like this, like, anarchic, chaos magic sort of occult totally. approach, almost. Like, um, there's a story of how he had gone to a restaurant, I think, in London that, um, you know, they were, for whatever reason, they were exceptionally rude to him and... uh um, you know, giving him terrible service or something. For whatever reason, he felt slighted by this place. And uh, he would go outside and take pictures of the of the restaurant. And they'd see him there and they'd remember him and they'd be like, get out of here, what are you doing? He's like, I'm on the public street. I have every right to be here and take these pictures. And then he'd apply this cut-up technique to uh, the photographs that he'd had. And so he'd splice together his photographs and cut out the presence of that storefront where this restaurant was. And, mm-hmm. you know, within a matter of months, the place had closed and they'd gone bankrupt. And, you know, it's not, I've, I don't know that anyone would assert that him, you know, cropping some pictures physically made the, the place close. But it's bordering on some eerie phenomena that um, that he was very into that I've, I've found a lot of, I guess, right <laughs> material uh, for for some of the things that I like to explore in terms of what we're writing about musically. Um, Another guy that I've gotten a big kick out of lately, um, or, or, well, over the last three years or so, is I've read a, a fair amount of Robert Anton Wilson stuff, um, and oh, okay. he gets into some some similarly uh, bizarro territory uh, as some of the stuff mm-hmm. I just described with Burroughs, um, and it's also very funny. Um, he's got a very, uh, uh, I guess he's he's got a, an excellent wit, and he's also extremely uh, well researched in such a broad swath of things. Everything from you know, Western occultism and some of the weirder, witchier shit that I was just referring to, uh, all the way through you know quantum physics. And um, he's exceptionally smart and well researched in all these areas. And uh, I've, I've found a lot of joy reading his stuff lately, um, and just his explorations in consciousness and experiments that uh, one can undergo to, uh, I guess, it, for lack of a better description, kind of hot, hack the, the the human brain's operating system to a degree. Um, yeah, it's it. Uh, it he kind of gets into um, the sphere of thought that. Uh, but Crowley, Alistair Crowley, had begun with what he called scientific illuminism, um, which is basically taking all these different crazy techniques that, um, you know, are, are often regarded by conventional science as bogus, uh, and applying the scientific method to them. So, yeah, okay, Eastern mystics tell us we can meditate for you know 20 hours a day and achieve an out-of-body experience. Um, okay, so be it. Let's try it and <laughs> let's record the results and not posit any sort of uh, belief system to it, but um, do the experiments, note the results, and note the outcomes and see what happens. And they observed that there's some consistent things that can occur uh, when people undergo certain experiments. But a lot of that stuff um, uh, has, has definitely informed a lot of the more recent circumstance material. 
um, in terms right. of like what what we're we're writing about and just what we're interested in. Um, uh, but yeah, I think you know there's definitely a good crossover between um, heavy metal and literature. I know virtually all the musicians I know in the Denver scene. I, I I've had conversations with them about you know what books we love. Um, things that have influenced us or impacted us, um, and so it's kind of funny to to juxtapose the, I guess, caveman image that a lot of non-metalheads have of metalheads with okay. you know, the, the the literary and intellectual pursuits of a lot of the people involved in these scenes. You, know, you mentioned going back to neurosis, like Steve Von Pill is a school teacher. Um, neurosis yeah. also, you know, we we're talking about. Uh, Western occultism and hermeticism. Um, you know, that song Locust Star uh, has that old uh, hermetic axiom in it, that which is above is as that which is below. The macrocosm is represented in the microcosm. And they just refrain that, that, that which is above is as that which is below. So I think there's certainly a, a, a wide variety of musicians that are reading all kinds of crazy things and incorporating that into their approach to music, and I think that's a great thing. I think uh, it's great when great art influences great art. I can't claim that ours is, is great art, but um, if somebody if somebody thinks so, I'm flattered. Um, yeah, that was an awesome answer, and I'm <clears throat> I was really fascinated. I mean, by everything you said, but especially um, you know Burroughs uh, caught my interest, and for some reason when I was thinking about this question, I definitely didn't think about Burroughs, but I mean, he's really such a, you, you described him as kind of having this anarchist mindset. And I think that's really awesome with the, um, so the cut up literature, I wanted to kind of go back and maybe explain it for somebody who doesn't really know. So he would, basically, sure. from my understanding, he would write, he would write a piece. So say like a prose piece, and then he would just literally cut it up and rearrange it yeah. with kind of the se- seeming randomness, right? And then, so that's Naked Lunch in a nutshell. Well, and there's, I it's, think, yeah, right? that's like a, that's a good way to like boil it down. So like the, the way that he would describe it, and I would, I would recommend um, for anybody who's interested in, in Burroughs's, uh, basically him, in him delving into these subjects directly um, outside of his, his, body of literature where he's, you know, discussing it in a capacity that, you know, isn't in the context of, you know, like Nova Express, Naked Lunch, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. the check out, check out his books, The Job, which is currently in print. Um, you could, there is a print of that out that's current. Um, and then you can find PDF copies of his, his book with Geisen, um, The Third Mind online. Um, both of those mm-hmm. delve really deeply into it, but, the, what Burroughs began to discover, and he, would, he wouldn't necessarily always even use his own writing. You know, he might cut up a bit of a newspaper clipping with an interesting story or right. some phrases that he liked. Um, and, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd chop these things up, sometimes splitting words in the middle of, of the words themselves or in the middle of letters um, and rearrange them and kind of see what patterns emerged. And he found that it was almost like a form of divination in, in its own weird way. Like he, it would reveal new yeah. facets of the story that he would be working on to him or a side of, uh, of what he was focusing on. Um, 
in a new light or and it would somehow still make sense um even when you've got you know these jumbled uh impossible word constructions you know that are you know um two different words just kind of smashed together that would somehow still make uh some semblance of, of sense in a context and of course you know yeah. this technique doesn't mean that like every single time you make some confetti out of your writing and throw it against the wall that you're going to come up with something brilliant. Um, you know, and he, he talks about how you discard tons of this stuff um, more often than yeah. he would use it, but it was a, re- a really revealing process to him. And it was ultimately one that informed a lot of his experiments um, moving forward. And he would apply the same logic of the top that cut up to, you know, like I mentioned with the photography, um, he would, he would take pictures and rearrange them, slice them up in, in fashions uh, that he would like to see them. Or alternatively, he always had tape recorders on them, on him, and he would mm-hmm. record people. Um, and he would record events, and he was constantly taking notes out of his environment um, and just kind of observing things. And he would use these in his cut-ups. Um, and it's, it, there's a crazy article that he gets into, I think it's in The Job, um, that, that he talks about, I think it's in the, the chapter called Academy 23, which gets into the whole 23 phenomenon, which is a whole other crazy <laughs> um, Easter egg of, uh, of insanity uh, that we could delve into if you want. Um, but uh, he, uh, he talks about like weaponizing this stuff and how you could create these, these cut-ups of recordings and play them back to people to, agitate them. So like if you record words in, in like a harsh, angry tone, um, even if it's, if the message construction of that sentence, you know, is ultimately a positive one, you can agitate people you discovered. And it's, it's funny to kind of put it in that context because the broader theme of Burroughs, um, that, that at least the Burroughs I know, and you know, there's, I'm certainly no Burroughs scholar, uh, but, uh, he's, he was, really adamantly opposed to any forms of control. Um, anything yeah. which tried to manipulate you into um, some sort of decision outside of your own personal will. Um, and mm. so he talked about using these cut-ups as his own personal weapon against control and basically just fighting uh, the broader forces of control, which you know, or myriad. Um, and I don't think that he was really saying, oh yeah, everybody's out to get me um, type of thing, but he, he was certainly a wary individual as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I mean, I think that's kind of a, you know, brilliant on his part to describe it as this kind of having this weaponizing effect. Um, because to me, like when I read uh, Naked Lunch and then Cities of the Red Night and stuff like that, or when I, I haven't read it in a long time when I did read it. Um, it was just so disorienting and it was, but it was disorienting in a way that I think, you know, some of my favorite heavy and abrasive bands are that it, I couldn't stop consuming it basically, even though it is, you know, profoundly unsettling when I was reading Naked Lunch. I don't, I don't think I'll ever forget it. I was having nightmares at the time about the text, but not about <clears throat> the images or you know, anything like that from the text, but just literally the text itself, like flashing in my nightmares. And I just wake up like a regular nightmare. And I mean, it's just, you know, fucking with me on basically every level possible. 
And so, again, going yeah. back to the kind of metal connection, I think that's, you know, a huge reason. I can totally see, you know, why you're so interested in him. And, I mean, punk punk people from the 70s, you know, on have been obsessed with Burroughs for a long time. And I totally think there's a lot of, you know, logical connections for that. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, it's not just the subcultural heavy music stuff that got into it. Bowie claimed that he used the cut-up technique in writing a lot of his lyrics, particularly in the, the, the mid-'70s from, like, uh, you know, a little bit past the whole um, uh, Ziggy Stardust persona, but just through the, the Berlin Trilogy records as well. So from, like, well, I, I guess it started from, like, station to station going up through you know, low and heroes and all that. Um, but he talked about actively employing the cut up technique and writing his lyrics. Um, so I think that influence is, is a little bit more pervasive than, than people realize. And, you know, there's another totally. side of that coin that like, like a lot of people just like, like there's a lot of people that are like, Oh yeah. Bur- Burroughs is this cool gentleman junkie, you know, and just kind of leave mm-hmm. it at that. And, um, and don't really explore the techniques that much, which is fine. You, you know, everybody's entitled to enjoy this work however they please. And I think a lot of the yeah. punk stuff, like there's this kind of this romanticized junkiedom that kind of uh, came out of the whole New York punk underground, you know, your Johnny Thunders yeah. type, type of figures that would romanticize heroin addiction, you know, and the Richard Hells of the world. Mm-hmm. Richard Hell is, uh, is actually a pretty, a pretty fascinating and awesome person. Um, but, um, not, not that, not that Johnny Thunders wasn't. Um, but I think there's like people, there are different facets of like what attracts people to Burroughs depending upon, you know, what, what they, they find in it. Um, you know, I know a lot of people that like, that really love, you know, Junkie and Queer and his his pre-cut-up sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, he was a heavy writer, and there's there's no denying it. You talk about it, like, seeping into your dreams. You know, there's the yeah. imagery of, you know, all the, like, the sex-death executions in Naked Lunch. You know, those are pretty grim, you know? Um, yeah, and for, yeah you know, that he, he constructs his, his books. But I think it's ultimately like, you know, I, I don't know that I read it as like, as it being uh, anything malicious on his part, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there certainly could be facets of that, but I think he's just so adamantly against any forms of control that he was super wary of it and mm-hmm. kind of on guard um, to, a, to a great degree. You know, there's all those, those famous pictures of him, you know, with, with his, various guns and, you know, hiding, you know, like big knives and daggers in his, in his cane. Like there's a, a so, so another huge overlap with Burroughs and music is uh, he mentored Genesis Peorich from Throbbing Gristle and Psychic TV um, who in their own right are probably some of the most like, I guess, overtly occult um, <laughs> bands to, to, come out in the in the last 30 years 30 40 years mm-hmm. um but uh there's there's a book that research put out that's just kind of like it kind of chronicles um the relationship between William Burroughs um uh, Genesis Peorich and Brian Geisen um and how they all just kind of shared this information that kind of becomes or has parallels with what a lot of um what the whole sphere of 
what's now known as chaos magic uh, is kind mm-hmm. of founded upon. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a whole section in this one book where it's just pros talking about proper like self-defense techniques and how you can pop out somebody's Adam's apple with the, the bottom of your cane and things like that. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's certainly, uh, certainly, uh, a, uh, um, I guess he was on guard, uh, quite often but at the same time i think that like his underlying philosophy of just trying to undermine any sort of control um yeah is, is still kind of something that informs a lot of his stuff it's, it's something that i that at least i have kind of attached to a lot in his work yeah totally and another thing i guess um with burroughs too that i think is a huge connection to like hardcore punk especially and different heavy music, like, you know, I think on the surface, some stuff is so harsh, I think people can write it off as just being, um, you know, strictly masochistic, when to me, the best stuff is, you know, it's it's going to fuck with you and, you know, completely mess with you, but it's always for a purpose, something about, you know, Mirthbo and, and Sun and stuff like that, that just reaches into the deepest parts of you and completely unsettles you, but it's always, you know, for this larger idea or theme and so i think you know burroughs definitely embodied that mindset a long time before you know obviously <clears throat> well um, there's there's something to be said with like the the harsh noise stuff like the you know the mersbos of the world and all the other well and just like the musical approach is like musical terrorism you know like black metal gets left yeah. into this a lot like but um just this philosophy of like just creating like something like so so overwhelmingly grim and dark that it, you know, profoundly impacts the listener. It's kind of an interesting exercise. I don't know how valid one it is. Like, I, I like that. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I like me some Mersbo and some, some black metal, but I also, I don't know how, um, you know, when you get like a bunch of, you know, um, angry uh, Scandinavian teenagers just being like, I'm so grim, like, this music will eat yeah, your soul. Yeah. It's like, all right, guys, yeah. <laughs> great. Um, but yeah, yeah that, there's also something to be said for like the experience of just that, that sort of extreme, that extreme and you know, what that, that does to your headspace and how that, how that kind of informs how you, how you, um, deal with things, you know, and like, uh, it's almost like, music as a traumatic experience um with yeah some of these these people like and you know like sometimes like really devastating music can be beautiful too you know like uh, the bottom's yeah. favorite examples i love that band um and mm-hmm. their music is pretty uniformly like menacing menacing bleak stuff and yeah. uh you know i i don't think it's it's I don't think that that approach is necessarily without merit. Like, I think, you know, if, if you're just, you know, trying to write the evilest thing possible, like it's, it's, that's kind of like, that's not really my cup of tea, but I don't, I don't see the body doing that at all. I think it's more about exploring the depths of, of human despair and what you can learn from that as a human experience, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, um, and I guess I was thinking of that specifically today too, because I um, <clears throat> got an early copy of the Body and Full of Hell, uh, the collaborative album. Which um, oh, I can't wait to hear that. Too. I just heard the. That I saw earlier today that they uh, 
they posted their cover of uh, that Leonard Cohen tune. Oh man, okay. uh, that's all I've heard from that collaboration. But yeah, they um, I think they covered. I think it's called the Butcher. I think is the the one that they did. I can't remember which Leonard Cohen record that's off of. I think it's the one where he's talking uh, about like like Abraham um, um, like being told by God that to murder his child. Um, but uh, yeah. but yeah, it's yeah that's they're phenomenal. I can't wait to to get that collaboration and just their their next full length too. Um, but yeah, I think they yeah, they're, they're a shining example of exploring that that negativity in a way that's still really artful. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, <clears throat> and another band I was thinking about is you know you're kind of drawing that distinction, which I I do think it's an important one to think about. The you know kind of examining this despair and you know and kind of devastating the ultimately to me productive ways that very similar with neurosis and you know a lot of my favorite bands versus a kind of you know campy side of uh you know black metal kind of copycats and stuff like that it's almost takes on this kind of you know childish almost like new metal type quality like I'm just trying to scare my parents or some shit like that um but I remember talking to you a long time ago about um son and you uh you were telling me something about how um that type of drone can physically change your brain waves and so I was just thinking about that as you were uh talking um, yeah yeah it's said and I I'm not very well informed about this um uh, but I can speak to what little I know about it, but like on an extended scale, I guess exposure to, to long drone type sounds uh, can have the effect of, you know, your, your brain waves start to sync with the, uh, the wavelength that the, the music is producing. Um, the same mm-hmm. is said of like ritualistic tribal drumming and really repetitive, uh, repetitive, um, drum patterns for example like in, when you talk about like shamanistic drumming um mm-hmm. it's the notion of um kind of getting into this this cycle that 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 ultimately your your mind just sort of starts to sink to and it produces um interesting effects on your consciousness um yeah uh, so and then you know this this can be extrapolated like outside the sphere of, of of music, for example, um, you, there are meditational devices that people have created um, designed to induce like deep meditative states, and um, ultimately, what they are are sensors which monitor your brain waves and then produce sounds uh, that uh, allow your brain to kind of sync to a certain wavelength. Uh, I watched a cool lecture going back to Robert Anton Wilson. Um, where yeah. he was working with somebody who created one of these devices, and apparently it's been documented that I want to. And again, I've not done any of this research myself. I've not played with any of these <laughs> toys or or experienced this myself. So it's kind of hearsay at this stage. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but if I recall correctly, Robert Anton Wilson was saying that you have the effect that four four hertz. I want to say is what he he said the the wavelength was that uh, it can yield an out-of-body experience. And so mm-hmm. he tried this with this machine um, that's a 
engineer had created, and they were monitoring him in a lab environment to make sure he was safe and everything. And they get down to the four hertz uh, um, area, and Robert Anton Wilson reported an outer body experience in which he basically drifted up to the North Pole, then um, went across the sea to Ireland, where he had been living for a little while, explored the streets there, mm. circled the globe, and returned to his body before coming back to consciousness. <laughs> and when the and um, when his his engineer friend had uh, uh, looked at the the brain scans of you know what his brain was reading at, there was basically no other activity going on. And from a clinical perspective, he could be could have been regarded during that time that he was having this conscious out of body experience that he vividly remembers. He could have been considered brain dead. Um, and so it's curious to kind of explore. Like I think human consciousness is something that we we do know very little about, and it's a very peculiar thing. Yeah. And um, to kind of tie it back to the the narrative that we've been speaking to anyway, in which you know literature can impact music and influence music, that's something that's been a, a common theme on the the more recent Serpents material. It's definitely been a, an influence on me. That's really interesting. Um, and so <clears throat> I guess that was one question that popped in my head um, when you were just talking about Wilson was uh, I was just wondering if you've, what would you say is the band that's maybe come closest to kind of inducing something remotely similar for you that you've seen live? <clears throat> oh, you mean just like in terms of like manipulating those wavelengths to induce a response yeah, in the audience? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd say any of your really heavy drone bands um, can kind of traffic in that territory, but then also <laughs> that so can so can your your average hippie drum circle. You know, I mean, there's similar <laughs> results. Um, yeah. So I guess you know, sun is is an obvious yeah. one. Um, I'm not super into harsh noise. Um, there are some mm -hmm. bands that you know flirt with that sort of sound and aesthetic that I that I can dig. The body being you know chiefest among them. Um, yeah. but, uh, I, I'm sure that there are <laughs> plenty of musical terrorists out there who have explored it much more deeply than myself. Um, I, I'm, I'm not familiar with a lot of bands actively using that. There's also sort of this undercurrent of, um, you know, whether or not that's something that's, uh, ethical to do, you know, if you're going to manipulate uh, yeah. without the consent of the listener, like they're, Brainwaves is something that's, you know, there's ethical questions there. But um, also, I think that music kind of naturally has this tendency to kind of take you out of yourself, you know, in that, mm -hmm. like, if it's really good music, it does have a great escapist quality to it. You know, it kind of places you in another world. Um, so I think, I don't know, there's kind of a strange line that one could draw there. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it becomes a pretty interesting line. Um, they were talking about it. I kept thinking about um, the only time I've seen Sun, which I think was maybe just before I had met you when they're touring on uh, Monolith and Dimensions. Yeah, 2009 at the Bluebird. Yeah, yeah. Did you go to that show? Yeah, I was at that show. Oh, they're yeah. coming back to Denver in a, in a couple months here. I'm, I'm really excited for it. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. And so I just... I was thinking about my own experience and my, you know, kind of line up with what you're talking about in some sense. And 
I just remember watching Sun and so yeah, being, you know, completely sober and not having touched drugs or anything for um, I don't know, four years or something at that point. And but just having this sense of it wasn't so much out of body for me, but it was definitely kind of induced this really strange oh, kind yeah. of hallucinatory state. Um I, I remember was, feeling uh, like like sedated after that show. <laughs> like Yeah. Like, yeah, um, that's a good one to it. You know, like I I remember that show like well, first of all, you feel it's you feel the music they're creating because they're doing it at such an incredibly yeah. high and bassy sound uh, that that you you feel it like resonating within you. Um, and I think you know. So we're we're talking about these different devices that people have used these frequencies to to swiftly enter a deep meditational state. And I wonder if that could be in part what what kind of occurs when you, when you endure a show like that. Um, you know, I'll, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't contend that I got to some like, like deep meditational nirvana or something <laughs> from listening to sun, but, um, I certainly felt different. I, re- I remember that show too. I was, I was, uh, sober for it. I think I had like a beer that show. Um, yeah. and then just spent <laughs> The, the rest of the, the the time just, you know, mouth agape watching this crazy performance. But, yeah, I remember feeling, like, almost sedated uh, following that show. Yeah, yeah. It was like that kind of, almost like the drug hangover feeling. Like, I remember waking up after doing ecstasy or LSD and feeling kind of a, in a similar way in my brain was just, it it felt like it had been through the ringer. I just felt like really mentally like a serotonin drop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. And sun, and so you know, kind of having that hallucinatory vibe and everything looking almost like velvety or something like that. But then, yeah, you said the kind of pure physical force of it, and I'll never forget. I was with my sister, and I mean, we for whatever reason decided it'd be a good idea to just sit up in the front row. And so, yeah, I mean, it was grueling physically after a while. And I'll never forget, as soon as we left the show, she just walked up like a bluebird and just puked her brains out. And it was just that physical force. She was not alone. (laughs) Yeah. I think I saw a couple (laughs) people, like, leave that show to vomit. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Which, I mean, yeah, obviously not for anybody or not for everybody, but... You know, I'm glad that there's sun. The world needs sun, in my opinion, to kind of, you know, experiment and see what's possible in that realm. And again, going back to the idea of, you know, examining despair versus kind of exploiting it. Um, you know, they're a prime example of people who just dive to the deepest, deepest depths and about, you know, as profound, as profoundly as possible. So, <clears throat> yeah, I'm glad we were able to talk about sun. <laughs> Um, so yeah, all that stuff is pretty, you know, it's kind of deep web in a sense compared to, I don't know, bands like Metallica and Slayer and stuff like that. And so I'm always curious when I talk to people who, you know, you're obviously a lifer, um, with this style of music. And so I was just wondering about, you know, how did you get, how did you get to this point? What was kind of your trajectory as a kid? What band got you into metal and kind of up to where you are now? Sure. Um, I guess, well, like a lot of people, Sabbath was really some of the first metal I heard. Um, mm-hmm. I was also just starting to listen to music as 
grunge that was becoming a international phenomenon. Um, yeah. So I I, I kind of got into music. Um, I was I was pretty uh, young when I got into music um, or started to listen to, to records. Um, I, I'd say like eight or maybe nine years old, but I would steal my older sister's cassette tapes when she was off at boarding school. Um, she left like a big old duffel bag of, of cassette tapes. And I remember um, ACDC was probably the first like really heavy thing that I heard. Um, I remember as a kid, like hearing, uh, and I think the first thing I heard of theirs was, uh, um, it wasn't, it, well, actually, you know, I, th- I think it probably was Bon Scott era stuff, and I like that's that's my favorite ACDC um, to this day. Yeah. If I'm gonna put on some ACDC, I remember hearing Brian Johnson's voice, <laughs> like weird, like yeah, pterodactyl uh, <laughs> sort of thing. I remember like really not digging it the first time I heard it, but then I got into it because the, like the guitar sound was so heavy, and you know, I started mm-hmm. to play guitar around then too. Um, that so that would have been uh, probably the earliest stuff I heard that was heavy uh, would have been you know ACDC at that same time Metallica's Black Album was getting huge so I listened to that and that was on the radio a lot um, the first band that would be considered metal that I became like a big fan of was Sabbath um, uh, I I remember having like my Sony Discman um, you know at uh, at summer camp and like listening to of Paranoid on, on repeat. Um, beyond that, like I also got into uh, punk um, pretty early too. Um, mm-hmm. And kind of via, you know, the, the avenues that, you know, a, a 10 or 11 year old in the 1990s would have. So, you know, you see yeah. some spiky haired Mohawk guys looking like rancid or something on TV. And you're like, what's this punk thing? Like, I don't even know what this is. And I remember, you know, I got I got into some of that stuff. But then from there, I got really keenly interested in, you know, what influenced them. And that led me down the road to, you know, all the stuff that's now considered, like, classic first-generation punk rock shit. You know, um, mm-hmm. loved the Ramones. Still, I still love the Ramones. Um, and yeah, the Clash totally. were pretty big for me. Um, I also really dug, um, like, Black Flag, Misfits, Minor Threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and... A lot of that stuff uh, I, I really dug, and that kind of. But I, I also had a, a penchant for some of the, some of the, I guess, more metallic-sounding punk. Um, you know, like I remember, I really loved some of the later exploited records that kind yeah. of flirted with a more overtly metal-sounding uh, uh, guitar sound. Um, that so for for a while, you know, I went through that like teenage phase of like, oh, only listen to punk rock, you know, which is. Yeah, it's something it gets to, but it's it's still it's still a really important part of my formative years uh, musically. Um, And then I think it was probably by like I was probably in high school by the time I started to get more into like what we traditionally think of as as like metal. You know, getting like heavy Mm -hmm. into the first four Metallica records, um, Slayer, um, stuff like that. Um, you know, I got, I got into Pantera and stuff and, um, the, this type of mainstream metal that, you know, I, I thought I was super underground for listening to. Um, <laughs> yeah. and then, yeah, that, so that kind of, that sort of stuff was ultimately just kind of like a, a, a springboard to heavier stuff. Cause I did like finding, mm-hmm. um, finding out about rap bands that, you know, were doing, 
you know, intense, crazy stuff that, you know, that were maybe off the beaten path a little bit more or, or off the typical radar of a, of a heavy metal fan. But at the same time, you know, I absorbed a lot of the, the classic stuff too, you know, um, and yeah. bought a handful of Iron Maiden records and all that. But, uh, but um, yeah, I'd say like still to this day, like Sabbath, you know, is the metal band that's, you know, been the earliest and most consistent influence. Um, then that I, I didn't even realize that there was the whole genre of sludge or doom or whatever you want to call it that you know is pretty much predicated around that sound until later. Mm-hmm. I was probably in my um, early twenties the first time I realized that there are other bands like kind of working within that that template. Um, but yeah, that's so a lot a lot of like the the typical metal stuff that everybody listens to that you know it's kind of a touchstone for every metalhead and then mixed in with a healthy dose of punk. Yeah. Yeah, to me, I mean, um, you know, punk is really, it was a lot bigger for me than I kind of liked to think about in high school. So I had the same, you know, experience or similar one, getting into Slayer and Pantera and Sabbath was always my favorite band as well in high school. And uh, of course, for Metallica records. Um, and then I liked a lot of punk stuff in junior high and then didn't really come to, you know, appreciate listening to Black Flag and Misfits and Sex Vessels and stuff like that until later and kind of thinking about how it, you know, told me basically that anybody can pick up a, you know, instrument and play. And that's one of the things that really drew me into Sludge and Doom too, that, you know, I wasn't the most technically proficient player but i'd hear the stuff like you know the first time i heard sleep and i hate god and floor um you know it wasn't as alienating just on a technical level as like slayer out here you know dave lombardo or um pantera vinnie paul and just like the craziest fucking double bass drumming and shit like that and i was just like there's no way i could ever do that shit but then i'd hear the sludgier stuff and it just seemed very very accessible and kind of came to realize later it was, you know, has a pretty definitive punk ethos in that way. <clears throat> yeah, I think there's a quality to, you know, punk um, and sludge and doom that um, that I think is kind of, <laughs> I don't know, for lack of a better description, egalitarian, you know, in that anybody can yeah. pick it up and start playing it. But I think that, yeah. so I've always been more drawn to music that is, you know, evocative of certain emotions or just has a certain vibe to it more so than what is like specifically being played technically. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's plenty of technical stuff that I can dig. Like you talk about, you know, Dave Lombardo's drumming and, you know, or, um, you know, some of the more technically proficient heavy metal stuff. Like I can certainly dig it, but it's really what brings me to the table first is, that sort of atmosphere that somebody's able to create with really good music. And, you know, there are a lot of different mm-hmm. types of atmosphere that people are able to evoke, you know, in the, through music. And to me, um, you know, really simple music can be really profound. Um, you know, yeah. Swans would be another great example where, you know, they'll explore a single chord, but pummel you over the head with it for 10 minutes until it's terrifying. Um, yeah. You know, at, um, it creates a whole atmosphere into itself, but uh, yeah, I think that to me, I, I respond to that 
before I do the technicality. I don't mind the technicality, but I'm also not like, you know, you can do a bunch of wheelie dee sweet picking scales and arpeggios and stuff. That's great. But like, you know, if, if it's not in context, creating that sort of moment that I think we all kind of crave musically of creating this sort of world of itself, um, then, you know, I don't really give a shit how many notes you can play in what short amount of time span. Yeah, totally. I really agree with that. Um, and I wanted to backtrack a bit and, you know, for reasons I'm sure you know, talk about Pantera and Down. I mean, for one reason, Pantera is a huge, huge part of the book. Um, you know, just talking about them and kind of the role uh, they played and specifically Phil, you know, kind of in my youth. So he was always this, to me, just this figure that I could kind of look at and project, you know, basically... Um, all the things I kind of felt like I needed in my personal life, I could kind of project them onto him. He's kind of a caricature, at least his, you know, media personality. Um, and then just the music itself, you know, Pantera is one of those bands, so they are technical. But, I mean, they they really wed that kind of technical proficiency with this, you know, just um, undeniable feeling. And so, to me, that feeling is, you know, just kind of throwing down. <laughs> I, I remember Kip Rock. Which I mean, he's a huge douche, but I thought he had a pretty rad description of Pantera on some VH1 show, and he said it was just about you know like throwing down in the woods and not giving a shit and partying or something like that. And what I kind of took it was just like this, you know, unpretentious, just straightforward kind of balls out, and also un- unapologetic expression of aggression is you know perfect. Yeah. For what I wanted to hear at the time, and so I want to talk to you first about um, you know what Pantera kind of what you maybe got from them that you didn't uh, maybe from other bands at the time or how you got into Pantera or what, you know, what role they sure. played in your life. So I guess um, I, I, I'd consider Pantera kind of like a gateway band for me. Like they were one of the bands yeah. that I got into that, um, you know, I thought they were, you know, the heaviest thing around when I first heard them. And then that they were kind of a doorway to other heavier, more obscure music for me um, that, mm-hmm. that this now I, I, you know, kind of hold in, in higher esteem just because it's more of what my tastes have become. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah. There's something, the thing I always, that always really attracted me to Pantera was the, the sort of groove element to it. Like there's yeah. that driving sort of groove underneath it. That is uh, what really attracted me to it. There's, you know, there's other bands that I would say have, in different genres that have similar grooves, like, like Cannibal Corpse is one that, you know, there's this, that kind of pounding rhythm to it that mm-hmm. um, kind of, to me, makes it what it is musically. Um, for for them, yeah, I, um, yeah, they're, they're definitely, they're, they're something, they were a band that I listened to a lot um, in kind of like my late teens, uh, early 20s. Um, and, yeah, I, I mean, I, I dug them. I, I, uh, I don't know if they resonated with me quite, quite uh, as intensely as as they did for you. Um, I, I, but I still oh, definitely okay. was a big fan. Um, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I definitely like loved those records. Um, I think Far Beyond mm-hmm. Driven, you know, has some of the coolest like riffs and grooves. Uh, like the I'm broken riff is still like one of my, my favorites. And I remember, you know, you, you talk about it being like music where you 
like uh, throw down, right? Like I remember just yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. just like violently headbanging to that that song, like blasting <laughs> yeah. it, like uh, like probably pissing off my neighbors. Um, um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean they they had they had that, and now like I like I'm I'm probably way more apt to throw on a down record than than I am uh, mm-hmm. um, a Pantera one. I've like I just love the like Pepper Keenan's guitar harmonies throughout those yeah. records, and um, it still has like that very heavy groove element to it, but there's like more of a simple like it's like blues-based rock and roll type of thing to it. Um, yeah, yeah I, I like Pantera quite a bit. Well, thanks to any listeners out there for tuning in, and once again, I'm JJ Anselmi author of Heavy, a memoir of Wyoming, BMX, drugs, and heavy fucking music, uh, which recently came out on Rare Bird.